0: Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly.
1: When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts,
2: Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
0: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 5th, 2019. And well, hot damn, the White Sox won a series for the first time since the 4th of July, With a record of 48 and 61 and on pace to only win 69 games this season. It's time to take stock of how this season has been progressing and what we need to still see in the last two months to give us a bit more confidence about this team going into 2020. So we'll do a status check during the show which you'll want a notepad or a spreadsheet handy to follow along with us, and you can let us know which players on the current roster and in the minor leagues you have the most confidence being significant contributors next season. Of course, we'll recap the Philadelphia series, but we'll also preview the upcoming four-game series in three days against Detroit, as an old friend will be returning to start a game for the White Sox. Plus the week that was in the minor league report and answer your guys's questions and PO Sox. We got a lot of show here for you. And joining me to start is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. The White Sox finally won a series and great news. They could find a way to win games. Uh So but let's start with Friday's 15 inning affair. Uh, where does that game rank among the weirdest you've ever watched?
2: Well, you know, it was strange, uh, but strangely enough, the White Sox really didn't contribute a whole lot to the weirdness of his, mainly on the Philly side. I mean, the White Sox did have Carson Fulmer almost contributing an extra base hit for his first ever hit and end up straining his hamstring running down the first base line. But Rick Renteria, to his credit, he didn't have to bring a position player into it. He uh, allocated his pitchers pretty well. His pitchers also, you know, uh, kept the game going, so they, they helped. their end of the bargain. Uh, Renteria, uh, aside from the inning where he had Jace Fry and, and just after Ivan Nova left the game to where it looked like it was going to be a nine-inning game, he had to manage carefully. Once it went to extra innings, he managed it responsibly and had pitchers left, whereas Gabe Kepler, uh, I guess it was because the starter turned to reliever who he expected to get more out of ended up reporting tricep tightness, but um, you know, he had to go to a position player and hadn't needed a position player to throw two innings. And they had Vince Velasquez, uh, Vince Velasquez in left field throwing out a guy, almost throwing out another, making a diving catch. I mean, everything was weird on the Philly side. The only thing the white Sox did was keep it going. They were a good foil for it. Yeah. Vince Velasquez, what a performance
0: in left field. Yeah. I think for Nick Capra, when he threw out Jose Abreu, I didn't th- I'm i wondering if Capra saw the play and thought to himself, there's no way this pitcher is going to field the ball cleanly. Obviously, starting pitchers in Major League Baseball, you give them a crow hop, they're going to hit 95. So you know he's got the arm, but to be able to field the ball that cleanly and make that throw... Was incredibly impressive, and to almost do it again, I feel like his throw, even though Lurie Garcia was safe, that second throw, Jim, was even more impressive in my book.
2: Yeah, I think with Capra, the decision making wasn't wrong. Uh, You know, maybe with Abreu not running his best, um, you know, that might have contributed to it. Maybe that's the case where you know he could have been more conservative. But I think when you look at the odds the attempt to uh uh see i guess velasquez's attempt to throw for the very first time from left field uh, you know as you mentioned you know it's a matter of trying to collect the ball it's also a matter of getting his body in order and delivering an on-target throw and timing the hop uh you know to where it's not too long or too short for the catcher uh you know there's a lot that uh, i imagine capra would say like well he's not going to get it right the very right the first time and sure enough, it's on target, and then the second one was perfect as well. So yeah, uh, I think the second one, after the first one, Capra, you know, should, if he had a runner slower than Larry Garcia, like if it were Jose Abreu again, I don't think he would push his luck, you know, to take his chances twice in a row, but with Garcia uh, upping the degree of difficulty for Velasquez and making him, uh, you know, deliver just as strong a throw, even, you know, quicker to the plate, uh, I think that's that's case where it was, you know, two good gambles by him, and Fortunately, the second one paid off. So
0: I have a hot take concerning a 15-inning regular season game. Okay. I don't necessarily think it's good for baseball. Not in the regular season. I am starting to warm up to the idea of putting a guy on second base in the extra innings. Mainly because of what Gabe Kapler had to go through. And the fact that pitchers seem to be getting hurt more frequently. And instead of burning out pitchers for one game out of a 162 game schedule, I think there has to be a way to speed things up.
2: Yeah, I guess I, I, I see where you're coming from. I wouldn't call it a uh, an unreasonable hot take. Uh, I just think that it's, you know, if you make it, uh, I guess the, when you have a game like that, uh, where you see the, I guess when it comes to that kind of argument, I think I would save it for a game where it's like 14, 15 innings and it's completely boring. (laughs) And, uh, you know, a pitcher ends up giving a, you know, game winning homer up or a position player ends up giving a game winning homer up, uh, because he's completely unqualified for the mound. But the way it happened, it reminded me of the Matt Albers game where just, uh, you're glad you watch it to the end because you may not see that happen again, at least anytime soon. You won't see Velasquez happen again anytime soon. You might see a pitcher play left field and throw somebody out. You're not going to see a pitcher make two perfect throws and then uh, make a diving catch on top of that as well. I mean, that's, that's something I was happy to witness, but, uh, you know, Steve Stone, I think mentioned in a tweet and I would call it one of Steve Stone's good tweets recently saying that, uh, uh, when you have that kind of thing, you know, you don't see it in other sports. Maybe you see like a running back throw a pass occasionally, but you don't see the, the positions change so dramatically and, and see uh, players forced to, uh, you know, step up and improvise. And I think that's kind of a, a selling point for the game. And when it gets, I think they're also infrequent enough. I would say maybe if it went back to like, say, 1968 type pitching dominance and, and complete offensive ice age, where you didn't have runs scored and these things were more frequent, then I think you might have a, a, a real safety concern uh, when it comes to rosters. But I think for the time being, they just aren't frequent enough that I would uh, change the fabric of the game all that dramatically. Well, if extra innings increase, if we see an increase
0: in extra inning games, I wonder if major league baseball is going to adopt the rules than that are in the minor league baseball. I wouldn't be surprised after the 2021 season when there's a new CBA that Major League Baseball forces the issue anyways. And starting the 10th inning, we're going to see guys at second base. You will be seeing this in the Olympics next summer where if a game goes in extra innings, you're going to have somebody at second base.
2: I'll, I'll be curious with the change to the bullpen coming up with you know uh, pitchers required to face a minimum of three batters, whether that will allow managers to have more arms on deck in later innings and in the extra innings because they don't make the, you know, sixth inning switches as frequently. I don't think it's necessarily that important, but yeah, when it comes to like small minor changes, like the mound visit uh, change, you know, uh, putting a limit on mound visits, I think has been really a dramatic positive improvement you don't hear much of but I'm thinking back to you know I remember watching uh, when they instituted the rule I remember watching a game between the Orioles and the White Sox with Kevin Smith and uh Wellington Castillo they were both uh, catchers opposing each other and Castillo stayed behind the plate Smith made a mound visit just about every inning maybe a couple times per inning he was out there a lot wearing out the path between plate and and the mound and really I think you know you don't hear about it much because I think it's just been accepted but uh I, I think it's a small change that's done a lot to improve the pace of the game. And I'm wondering, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people criticize the uh, the uh, rule for minimum batters faced and saying, like, it's not that big of a deal as much as it used to be when, uh, you know, pitchers really had, or I guess bullpens really had true loogies and, um, you know, that it might just result in intentional walks and, and, and so forth. But I'm really in, intrigued by how it could work out because I think if you reduce the amount of mid inning pitching changes – It could allow bullpens to have, you know, maybe only six or seven arms necessary. And you don't have to go to the bullpen to eight. And maybe if you go into extra inning games, you don't have so many pitchers being used. Um, I'm not sure if that's likely, but uh, I'm keeping my mind open to it just because we've seen smaller changes have, uh, I think, bigger impacts than we give it credit for. And I think this is the case where. Uh, we could have some normalcy restored and, and more pitchers available for regular work later in games. Well, let's move on to Saturday because I think this
0: is an important topic of conversation. And again, it is about bunting. With runners on second and third and one out late, a fly ball ties the game for the White Sox. A single gives the White Sox a lead. And Rick Renteria, lately, whenever there's a runner on third with fewer than one out, Or two outs, I should say. So either no outs or one outs. Jim, it just feels like when I'm watching the game that the bunt is coming. That he's going to go to the safety squeeze because for some reason he thinks that's the most likely play that will help drive in a run for the White Sox. And it was Yomer Sanchez putting down the bunt. Reese Hoskins, he made a great play. And he got Eloy out at home plate. But I feel like this is just more than one bad call by Rick Renteria, Jim. And as a manager, to me, it seems like he's almost refusing to learn and to change his methods.
2: Yeah, no, it, it, that was my complaint. And that's why I was really um, irritated on Twitter, just because, uh, you know, when, when Hoskins is charging and by the time Sanchez squares around a bunt and he, and he puts the bat on the ball, Hoskins is like 50 feet away. Uh, they read their mail, basically. The Phillies read Rick Renteria's mail um, and, and saw it coming. And it's, you know, the squeeze, the safety squeeze, especially <clears throat> uh, given that how, I guess, you know, the suicide squeeze, it works as long as the bunt goes down. Safety squeeze is entirely predicated on surprise. And if when it gets that predictable when when you know teams can see it coming and they play with the corners pinched and you know Hoskins is charging as soon as the pitch is being thrown and, and even a good bunt has no chance of getting the plate on then that just you know I think that embarrassed Renteria a bit. Uh, it has to. I think when it, when a surprise play is that predictable uh, to to where it's just a, a free out for you know no matter how it happened, unless the only way that uh, Sanchez could have bunted safely really is to if he slugged it over Hoskins' head, like if Hoskins charging he popped it up over his head about 80 feet, and and that might have been the one way to get it done based on the way the uh, defense was aligned, and that would have been a terrible bunt that happened to work if if that were the case. So. I'm hoping, you know, and and I tend to get in trouble when I hope for Renteria when it comes to adjusting, and I'm hoping that that's kind of a system shock to where uh, he just saw somebody completely uh, showing him how predictable he is and how self-defeating, especially playing for a tie in the road. Uh, that, that's what drives me nuts, too, is like, you know, it's one thing if they saw it coming, you know, they're they're trying to get the lead and it didn't work, um, but it, it's, a, it's a stupid decision on two points. One is that, you know, it's a suicide or safety squeeze that the opponent saw coming their thing is that it's playing for the tie in the road and that's just something you don't give up an out to score the tying run on the road Uh, especially in a small ballpark with a with a bullpen that's kind of worn out after a 15 inning game the day before there was just no good reason for it there's no logic to it and completely blew up in their face and uh they were lucky that uh, matt skull bailed them out uh and and uh well, actually, that was the wrong game. So they didn't get bailed out there. He they lost by one. He designed that one. Uh, he designed that game to lose by one run, and he did. So that's uh, I, I think probably a low light for him in terms of game strategy. He's had a lot of them, but I think that's the case where just uh, there was no reason to call for it. The execution, even though the execution was good, it showed how bad the strategy was, and it ended up. Uh, blowing up in his face. So uh, I'm hoping that's the case. And especially ninth inning, Sanchez delivers the single, so he comes through in that same situation with two outs. And then on uh, on Sunday, he they had the infield in with a runner on third and one out, and he ended up uh, parachuting a ball in the shallow center field over the drawn-in infield, and he got it done. So uh, in two cases after Sanchez squared around a bunt, he uh, came through by swinging the bat. And I'm hoping that sequence of things, the Philly is showing him how bad his call was, uh and two successful swings afterwards shows that uh um uh just squaring around every time there's a runner in third and one out is just uh really self-defeating.
0: We'll see. I'm not holding my breath. I'm thinking he's going to continue to stick to his ways. Yeah,
2: yeah the pattern is that you know, it, if there's a good series or a good game then he kind of backs off for a week or so. But whenever there's like a bad series where the White Sox go like 2-4 25 with runners in scoring position and have a few notable failures where swinging the bat with a runner on third results in a strikeout and they waste a few opportunities then it seems like he goes back into helicopter parenting mode where he just wants the safest thing possible the safest way for the White Sox to not embarrass themselves he's not really looking for success he's just not looking for failure and I think that's a dangerous mindset for a manager and it's uh, um, not fun to watch and it's just uh, a wrong all the way around. I think if you're Rick Renteria, you'd rather just let the players keep failing um, and and just point out that they're not ready yet and whether that results in uh, different guys being brought up or whether it results in changes to the coaching staff or what have you. I I just think that uh, when you take the bat out of their hands as frequently as he does, nobody learns anything. Yeah, he needs to start
0: managing this team like he would if they were to be contenders.
2: Yeah, grown-ups. It's kind of like college softball. Ooh, that bad? A little bit. Like college softball, there's just so much bunting and so much, you know, playing for one run, hoping one run gets the job done. And, uh, you know, that one run doesn't get the job done in this run scoring environment, especially, you know, the, the big swinging environments, uh, easy home runs. Playing for the tie in the road and, and playing for one run is just, uh, yeah, it's it's that kind of strategy. You still see it in college baseball, but the best
0: programs in the country are starting to move away. From that strategy, we just saw the champions Vanderbilt. They have moved away from the bunting. They just let their guys free swing, and again, back to Renteria. I I do not trust the idea that all of a sudden he's going to manage in a different manner when they are expected to contend. I feel like he's just going to manage like he has been during his White Sox tenure. And we're still going to see bunts. We're not going to see bunting, obviously, from Eloy Jimenez or Jose Abreu, but we might see it with Johan Makata and that will drive me up a wall. We could see it with Tim Anderson. We're definitely seeing it in every opportunity with Yulmer Sanchez and Lurie Garcia. We may see it with John Jay or Adam Engel. Uh, yeah, definitely Adam Engel, and it, it's just—it's so easy. I'm a fat guy watching on a couch at home. If I can, t- if I could tell the White Sox are laying down a bunt with a runner on third, I can guarantee you the other team knows it's coming.
2: And well, they know and, it's coming yeah, all the time. In the Mets series too, he was playing the infield in with runners on third and and, and uh, fewer than two outs, and the Mets broadcasting booth was saying like, "Yeah, Rosario's not going to bunt. Todd Frazier's not going to bunt. Why are they playing the corners?" then? And it seemed to me like, you know, Renteria was managing the defense like he was managing against himself and expecting the other manager to do the same thing. So that's I, I was really concerned about where his head was at with this whole, yeah, I'm not sure if it's kind of like a, a mid-season, um, you know, frustration mounting for him and just uh, being at wit's end and just malfunctioning for a week. But it seems like something is really uh, – uh, changed with his, uh, demeanor when it comes to runner on third to where it just, uh, the, you know, he's so afraid of it. So afraid of scoring zero runs. And the, and the problem with, you know, playing for one run is you often score zero runs doing that too. And that's what drives me nuts about the conversation and about, you know, the, um, you know, the, you know, and why bunting is, it has so fallen out of favor is just that everybody, when the bunt doesn't work out, people blame the bunt for not working. Like it was a player failure, but, you have to account for the bunt not always working. and You have to account for a pitcher making too good of a pitch to bunt. And, uh, you know, when when, in, when the best-case scenario is scoring one run, uh, that's just uh, not good. especially trailing one on the road. If they are tied and they were going for the lead, whatever. You know, like, well, not whatever when they're you know, reading the play that much, but, you know, calling for the squeeze play, that's fine. You know, get, get the run, get the lead, whatever. But when it comes to, you know, t- playing for the tie and, and being afraid of taking the lead – Uh, that's where it seems like he's 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 really hurting the team and that's that's really what it comes down to is those play calls hurt his team's chance to win well luckily on Sunday we did not have to see a lot of
0: bunting as Lurie Garcia hit his first career grand slam in the second inning which is pretty awesome Eloy Jimenez is waking up he hit a three-run homer late to make it 9-3 for the White Sox, and the Tim Anderson added a solo shot, his 12th home run of the season. It's been a while since we've seen Tim Anderson hit a home run, and maybe, just maybe, Sunday, with their offensive explosion from a team that had only scored 44 runs in their last 22 games. Maybe this offensive explosion could spark a bit of a run here of good offensive play, Jim, or is this just an aberration?
2: I'm leaning towards aberration just because it reminded me of the Marlins game uh, where they, they broke out for four homers, but the walks, the strikeouts were totally out of whack. And in this case with Drew Smiley on the mound, the White Sox drew one walk and they struck out nine times. And I think that's really what's going to make it hard for them to sustain a a line of attack is just, they don't have a lot of guys who are good at keeping the line moving. I'm surprised by Ryan Goins, like how many walks he's drawn. He's already uh, drawn more walks than Tim Anderson this season. And maybe like a, a quarter or, or less than a quarter of the uh, playing time. I think it might be a fifth of the playing time. Uh, you know, he's doing an okay job, but when he stands out for his patience, and that's never been part of his profile, uh, it's it's troubling. And, and that's why I don't really have high hopes. I think it's going to be kind of feast or famine based on how the ball is flying or whether they, uh, you know, get the lead and are allowed to swing away. But... Uh, it seems right now they're awfully dependent on the home run, which is not bad in and of itself. Like I think, you know, when you hear home run dependent offense, if you're hitting a lot of homers, that's great. But I think as we've seen, you know, with the Marlins game and then how the White Sox offense looked after the Marlins game, that this offense isn't quite ready to count on homers yet. So if you're if you're a a team that does not get on base and does not hit for power, uh, there's a lot more um, bad games and, and quiet nights on the way, at least until Yohan Moncada gets back. Well, that
0: was the Philadelphia series. Again, the White Sox won two out of three. So that's good news. Again, their first series win since 4th of July, uh, which is a bit depressing. But they're going to be still continuing this road trip as they head to Detroit. They're going to play four games in three days with Tuesday being a doubleheader. And we're going to take a moment here to preview that upcoming series. But first, a word from our sponsor, SeatGeek, with baseball well underway. There's no better place to get your tickets than on SeatGeek. As SeatGeek pulls millions of tickets into one place, you can easily find the seats you want for a price you are willing to pay. And there's nothing quite like being there in person and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for great value. And speaking of being there in person, SeatGeek asked baseball fans from all 30 teams across the country which stadiums had the best experience. From the food to the traffic, they ranked it all. And If you want to see where each team ranks, you can go to SeatGeek.com slash stadium guides and find out what fans have to say, especially for Some of you that are heading to Detroit this upcoming week to Comerica Park to watch the White Sox and Tigers, you can check out the guide. Again, that's SeatGeek.com slash stadium guides. And if you are going to be making your way to Detroit or with the White Sox coming home next weekend to face the Oakland Athletics, a couple cool giveaways. Saturday is going to be the Aloy Jimenez bobblehead day. And on Sunday, a surprise announcement, they are giving away the Harold Baines Replica Hall of Fame plaque, a pretty cool giveaway. And if you want tickets for any of these games, go on SeatGeek and download their app onto your smartphone and use our promo code Machine to save some money. So again, download the SeatGeek app onto your smartphone, enter promo code Machine for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event, we have the tickets. And again, the Chicago White Sox are heading to Detroit for a four-game series in three days as they make up one of the rainouts back in April. The Tigers are 32-75. and They are on their way to having the number one pick in the 2020 Major League Baseball draft. The White Sox season record against the Tigers is 5-3. So that means the White Sox still have 10 more games this season. Against Detroit. So, while we felt pretty bad after the All Star break and how poorly they were playing, maybe we could feel a little better about ourselves watching this team Monday through Wednesday in these four games. And your pitching problems for this series starting on Monday it will be Lucas Giolito for the White Sox against Spencer Turnbull. And Turnbull is only going to be limited to 75 pitches as he comes back off the injured list. On Tuesday, it's the doubleheader. The first game's at 12.10 p.m. Central Time. It'll be Dylan Cease against Daniel Norris. And at 6 o'clock that evening, Central Time, it is old friend Hector Santiago making the start for the White Sox against Drew Verhagen of the Tigers. And on Wednesday, getaway day at 12.10 p.m. Central Time, it is Ivan Nova, who's been pitching very well since pretty much July 1st, Against Tyler Alexander. So Jim Hector Santiago is back. He'll be making his thirty-fifth career start with the White Sox over three stints. He's got a career three point seven five ERA. He's been worth five war over four seasons with the White Sox. In this start, is he threatening to take either Rossett Weiler or Dylan Covey's spot?
2: Yeah, I think it's possible. I think maybe Detweiler did bounce back and, and had a nice outing against uh, Philadelphia. So he probably bought himself a little bit of time. But Covey, I think, is expendable. And I think Covey came up mainly because the White Sox went 15 innings the day before. Detweiler's is not a great candidate to go along into a game. So, you know, should uh, should Detweiler have exploded and given up, you know, seven runs over two innings, maybe Covey would have come in to throw you know, 80-90 pitches and 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 try to get as many innings out of him as possible. So I think he's, you know, more or less fragile and in a in a in a spot. But I think Santiago, you know, given that he's lefty and the White Sox have a lot of lefties in the bullpen, especially depending on Detweiler, I don't see a, a great opportunity to stick for him unless Kovey goes down. But uh you know, it's an opportunity for him and he's been pitching reasonably well in Charlotte. So there there's a possibility there. But uh, I I wonder with the Detroit offense, whether, you know, given how poorly they're playing and, and, and uh, just the overall success of the team, whether any you know one start is going to be enough to show Rick Renteria anything. Yeah, the offense for Detroit is not good.
0: Their pitching has been pretty good for the Tigers. But when you look at their war as a position player front, uh, it's inching closer to the negative range. Yeah. So don't expect a lot of offense, especially since they have traded Nicholas Cassi- uh, Cassianos Yeah,
2: that's all I was going to say to the Cubs. So <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm looking at their uh, OPS leaders now, and yeah, it's Castellanos was first with uh, at 790 among regular players, but only one guy above 750. And is that uh, Miguel Cabrera? No, that is uh, Brandon Dixon.
0: Brandon Dixon still in the majors. Good for him. Uh, so yeah, this should be a pretty, this should be another series win for the White Sox. I mean, if they split this four game series, even though it's on the road to a Detroit team, that is really not good at the moment. That will be pretty disappointing as we recap this series on Sox machine live
2: on Wednesday night. The one thing I'm, I'm wondering about though, is when I was looking at the, when I was doing the Tim Anderson post and looking at how the White Sox fared and. They're at the bottom of in walk rates and they're second worst in strikeout rate only to the Tigers and worst in isolated power. I mean, the White Sox offense, as it's constituted right now, and especially with Yon Makata out, uh, it's just really hard for them to feel too superior. So I guess that would be my concern. Uh, with this series right now, with the way they're playing, but you know this is a good opportunity. Like we, you know, we talked about before the Philadelphia series with some lefties. It was an opportunity for you know Eloy Jimenez to get on track and maybe Tim Anderson to get on track, and they both had some uh, some good at bats and and made an impact at times. So I'm hoping that this is the case here, where you know facing a you know Spencer Turnbull who's coming back from injury and Daniel Norris who's a lefty who's been. Uh, better as of late but they've gotten to them earlier in the season you know might be opportunities to just have more good games and and hopefully draw some walks too yeah just score runs yeah
0: that that (laughs) can't
2: be too picky right now but right i wouldn't mind seeing a couple games where they actually make pitchers work and you know run with the pitch count yeah me too we'll see how this series goes but again
0: my expectation is that the white Sox win at least three out of four. But the last time I felt that way is when the White Sox were visiting Kansas city and uh, that did not go well. (laughs) (laughs) The White Sox got swept. So hopefully the White Sox are not swept by the Detroit Tigers as again, um, maybe in a weird way, the White Sox would be doing the Tigers a favor uh, if they'd win this series. As again, Detroit still needs quite a bit of help and I'm sure having the number one pick in next year's draft uh, could go a long way in, the Tigers rebuild and a uh, funny story out of the Detroit free press over the weekend. I don't know if you caught this story at all, Jim, but according to the Detroit free press, Al Avila two years ago, so back in 2017 was offered two trades for starting pitcher Michael Fulmer. You remember our conversations about Michael Fulmer during the trade deadline? Will the Tigers trade him? Mm-hmm. The Chicago Cubs, according to the Detroit Free Press, offered Javier Baez for Michael Fulmer. And the Houston Astros offered Alex Bregman. And Avila turned both deals down. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so if you are a Tigers fan and you are reading that story <laughs> from the
2: weekend. uh, Yeah, Baez I get, you know, given that you know, he's got a pretty wild... Swinging habits, and he just happens to make it work for him. But his brand of success is unusual. Bregman's brand of success is not. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it's painful. Yeah, I was looking at Ron hire's record, and since uh, 2011, that's his last four years at the Twins and two at the Tigers, his teams have averaged uh, 99 losses. <laughs> Average 99 losses? Yeah, well, like at least uh, adding his body of work for this year because they're they're set to blow through. They, they haven't lost 100 games in the season yet. They've lost 99, 96, 96, 92, 98. And then this season, let me do the math real quick. 302 winning percentage times 162. Yeah, it's like a 49 win pace.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a good gig if you can get it. I mean, he's still managing in Major League Baseball. I'm sure he's still getting paid well to watch really bad baseball in front of him.
2: Yeah, but that was my, you know, a lot of White Sox fans had scar tissue from you know all of the the Garden Hire's Metrodome Twins teams, uh, you know beating the White Sox up and and really embarrassing them with that brand of ball. And but uh, when, when he became available, I saw a lot of White Sox fans uh, because of that you know history and, and knowledge. Remember uh, memories of the good times uh, with the Twins, um, uh, stumping for his arrival. And you know as, as frustrating as Renteria can be, I'm really glad. I'd prefer Renteria hundred times out of hundred over Gardenhire. Wow. That is
0: not a vote of confidence in Ron Garnier. <laughs> but, yeah, so, again, yeah, no matter how we talk about the White Sox rebuild, uh, good thing that there's no stories like that uh, coming out of the Chicago Tribune or the Sun-Times that the White Sox failed to trade one of their uh, controllable assets that could help jumpstart a rebuild and not bring somebody back like a Javier Baez or Alex Bregman. And now Michael Fulmer is recovering from Tommy John surgery, I believe. Uh, so we'll see and how he bounces back. But a missed opportunity for Detroit could just be another good omen for the White Sox in their rebuilding efforts. So let's talk about that. Coming up, as we will take a quick break, but if you remember from the intro, grab your notepads, open up a spreadsheet because it's time to take inventory. Who are we most confident in helping in the upcoming years of the transition from rebuilder to contender for the Chicago White Sox? Well, we'll share our list next on the Sox Machine Podcast.
1: When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices, and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X5 gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed.
0: There is only 53 games left in the season, and before you know it, this season is over. We've already learned quite a bit in 2019, but in the last two months, there are still cases from players in the 25-man roster and some players in the minor leagues, we have to pay attention to. If you truly believe that the Chicago White Sox in 2020 will contend, the magic number is 11. That's the amount of players worth two war or more. Right now in baseball reference, the White Sox have four players. Lucas Giolito, Yoan Makata, James McCann, and Lurie Garcia. Aaron Bummer is at 1.8 war, so he could be the fifth two-war player. And Tim Anderson is at 1.6 war, so maybe he could be the sixth player. But that's it. That's what it looks like for 2019. And the magic number again, 11, is when the White Sox have made it to the postseason. That's the least amount of two-war players that they had in 83, in 93, in 2000, 2005, and 2008. So how do the White Sox find these 11 players and which players are we most confident that are with the White Sox internally, whether on the 25 man roster now or down in the minor leagues that we assume will be major contributors in 2020. So this gives us an opportunity to watch these players closely in the final two months of the season. Well, you can join us as we run down our lists and feel free, feel free to share your list with us on Twitter, at Sox machine or at Sox machine underscore Josh, or in the comment section, at SoxMachine.com. So Jim, the way that I got this set up, as far as my status check, on the players that I'm most confident, that are going to be 2 plus war, I have a slam dunk category, so I'm 100% confident. I have a hopeful category, where I'm 75% confident, I have a maybe category where I'm like 50% confident, like 50-50 it could happen, and I just have a category that's just no. I have no confidence that these players could be two war players for the White Sox in 2020. So starting with the slam dunk, I have three players that I am confident will be two plus war players for the White Sox in 2020. I have Lucas Giolito, I have Yohan Makata, and I have Luis Robert. Do you have any players that you would be slam dunk? Yes. Watching what they've done in 2019, I am
2: confident that they will be two plus war players next year. I would say one and a half. I would say Moncada and then Giolito with the caveat that he's a pitcher. Oh, worried about injuries? Yeah, injuries, and, and based on him, this is his first good year.
0: One and a half?
2: Yeah. Is that should I take that as a dour answer or no, it's just slam dunk. Like, you know, I would lock it in. I would, um, you know, bet a, a too much money on it. Those would be the guys. So if you're looking at like say 95 to hundred percent certainty, those would be right. It. Okay, cool. So again, for those that are listening, if you have like a slam dunk,
0: 100% write down who you are. 100% confident will be two plus four. So we both agree on Makata but not Luis Robert. So let's maybe move over to the hopeful category. Let's say 75 plus percent is Luis Robert in that category for you.
2: Uh, if he got into action this year, I would say yes. You know, Cause I think his earliest uh, weeks in the majors and earliest months in the majors are going to be the hardest. And I think it's the case for a lot of guys, but I think especially with his profile of being somebody who's super aggressive um, I think he could stand the chance of just having to need some time to regroup and understand how pitchers are attacking him. So I think if you introduce all his struggles and 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 concentrate them all into one year, and in rather than spreading them out into 2019 and 2020, it stands the chance of knocking him down a little bit. I think he's talented enough to where he can be two WAR when when uh, including his defense and power. Uh, that's why I feel pretty good about it. But uh, I would put him at the lower end of that register. Okay. For
0: my hopeful, I have four players that I am hopeful that there'll be two plus war. I have the starting pitchers. I have Michael Kopech, and I have Dylan Cease. I have Tim Anderson, and I have Nick Madrigal. Those are the four that I have that I'm hopeful, I'm 75% sure, they're going to be two plus war. I already had Luis Robert as slam dunk. I'm super confident in him. He's going to be amazing, Jim. I'm I'm kidding. I'll try to slow down on the hype train, but... Uh, mm-hmm. for your hopeful for the guys that you are 75% sure they could be two war, who's on your list?
2: Yeah, I'm looking at uh Roberts, a, a barely, I would say, like in the low twos for him. You know, that's just kind of have mentally project him. I can see Tim Anderson, um, with a full healthy season, as you mentioned, Michael kopeck uh, Dylan Cease, like. Barely clearing two. I think that's a case where just like these guys are just barely clearing two for me, but I put them in the group where as long as they're healthy, they should get there. Uh, Eloy Jimenez too. I have him there. I just think he's going to be good enough and and not as, uh, I think he's going to be good enough with the bat and not as much of a liability left to where he should get there. Um, And I think Reynaldo Lopez too. I'm watching how he's finishing this year to see if he has a pattern for success with the way he's opened the second half. There's a way for him to get there. I'm not quite there yet, but he's, he's knocking on the door. All right. So you have way more people in your
0: hopeful category, 75% and higher than I do. So let's move over to the maybe category, the 50, 50 shots. This is where I have Aloy because the defense is that bad and watching this weekend I'm just not seeing progress being made. I don't know if this is something that he's going to work on during the off season, if this is going to be something that he's going to have to devote more time to during spring training, and uh, to be better at. But clearly, the defense is so bad that it's sapping his offensive value. Like he may not even be a one war player in in his rookie year, which is going to be a bit disappointing because uh, I thought wow, Aloy Jimenez is going to easily be a three-war player. He's going to be contender for Rookie of the Year, and it's going to be a fun battle between he and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And we're not getting that Rookie of the Year battle this year Uh, (laughs) in the American League uh, because, well, Vlad Jr. is starting to turn it up a little bit. Uh, But Aloy still has 18 home runs on the season, and he may get to 25 this year. But the defense is so bad that he he's really going to have to hit a lot to be a two plus war player. So that's why I'm going to have it in the maybe category. Cause I just don't trust his defense at the moment. I have Ronaldo Lopez in the maybe category because yes, he's been pitching better in the second half, but I still remember the first half. I have Lurie Garcia in the maybe category. I know he's a two war player now, but I'm really not counting on him to be a two war player for the White Sox next year, mostly because of playing time and James McCann. I'm just doubtful he can repeat his first half. We're already starting to see some pretty serious regression right now for James McCann, and maybe he is closer to the catcher that he was with Detroit. and We just saw him have the best first half of his professional career. Um, but again, it's a coin flip chance. I, I still put him in the 50-50 category where maybe he can repeat it again next year, and he can still be a— Big contributor for the White Sox at two plus war. So I have five players in my maybe category. Again, Luis Garcia, James McCann, Jose Abreu, if he comes back, Ronaldo Lopez and Aloy Jimenez. Who are you maybe on being a two plus war contributor for the White Sox next year?
2: Yeah, I'm with you with Lopez and Garcia. Uh, Lopez being the case with that he was almost, a, I'm almost feeling good about him again, but I want to see maybe one more month of it, <laughs> given that he's uh, he's he's pulled this trick before. And yeah, Larry's a little bit weird just because of playing time and because of health. Um, yeah, that's also a case where he's, you know, this is his first time really um, being a starter for a full season. Can he do it again? You know, will the opportunity be there for him to provide as much value as he has this year, just based on his flexibility, I'm, yeah, I'm not positive. Uh, and then after that, I'm, yeah, I don't feel great about McCann. Uh, Abreu, the way he's, Abreu feels 50, so I'll put Abreu in there because he feels 50-50. Uh, I think sometimes he does get, uh, you know, his bat does slow down. It's not because of age, it's just because maybe it's trying to cover so much of the plate and put balls in play and drive runs home that he just, you uh, uh, you know, he sacrifices something. You know, the, the snap and his swing just isn't there. But seeing him getting pushed around fastballs and, and not really connecting with anything solid until, like, Roman Quinn was pitching <laughs> makes me a little bit nervous about him. So I guess I would put him 50-50, which is, you know, saying something about his stock right now. Okay, so that's a very
0: small maybe list. So I just want to run down the list before we get into the players that we are most confident that are not going to be significant contributors next year. For your slam dunks, Joan Macata and then Lucas Gilito if he's healthy. Yep. You're hopeful. Luis Robert, Tim Anderson, Michael Kopek, Dylan Cease, Aloy Jimenez. Mhm. And then your maybes, Luis Garcia, Ronaldo Lopez, and Jose Abreu. Yes. So, counting down that list if I didn't miss anyone. The guy said you are 75% higher. You have 7 players. So, For your list, the White Sox need to find four players somewhere, maybe unexpected seasons again next year, to be significant contributors, to be two-plus war, in order for the White Sox to be seriously taken as contenders for a postseason spot.
2: Yes. My one concern, though, uh, and I brought this up. It was in the discussion, I think, in the Tim Anderson post on Sox Machine – is that right now with the way the White Sox offense is, like, say if Robert comes up and he's super aggressive and Eloy Jimenez is super aggressive, Tim Anderson, like a lot of these guys who are, you know, good bets or the or the best bets to get two two wins above replacement, all have a similar profile. And I wonder if you have too many of these guys who don't draw walks, whether that's uh, maybe individually their two wins above their average stars are better, two to three wins above replacement, but cumulatively it doesn't show up in the win total. That's my I guess. My reservation with the way, you know, this pool of seven players is I would like to see, um, you know, one of these guys be able to move the line more. And that's what I, that's I guess my biggest reservation about this cluster right now is that not only do they need to add four, but they need to add guys who are different from the four guys they or from the seven guys they have. And they haven't been great at finding that kind of talent, and that talent is hard to find in the open market.
0: Yeah, and for me. It's Gilito Mancada, Robert Kopek, Cease Anderson, and I have Nick Magrill. Are you counting on Nick Madrigal to be a significant contributor in two thousand twenty, Jim?
2: Not immediately. Uh, I I don't mind him, and I think you know he's especially like say Yolmer Sanchez right now. The, you know, the I guess the bar he's setting it's not too difficult to clear, but I can see him having. You know, batting 280, but being an empty 280, and maybe he gets the two wins, you know, just based on base running and and, uh, and and defense, you know, the whole package. But like I said, with the um, you know, with the guys above, like not drawing walks, not really keeping the line moving. I think it could take him a bit of time to find that kind of success in the majors. So I would be, I guess, under 50 percent that he's a a, a valuable starting player for the White Sox in 2020. Maybe towards the end of the year, but I think full season I could see some early struggles where just a lot of easy outs. All right, so let's go to the players
0: that I am not confident that are brought up are going to be significant contributors. John Jay, I think he's gone after this year. Mm Ivan Nova, gone. Ryan Cordell, no. Adam Engel, no. Yomer Sanchez, I right now... If I had to do my off-season plan project for Sox Machine, I would not tender Yomer Sanchez a contract. He's too expensive for what the White Sox pay. And I think the one minor leaguer that I see on Twitter that folks are still hopeful for is Zach Collins. I I cannot look at Zach Collins' profile and say with even 50% confidence that he's someone the White Sox can count on being a two plus war player. Now, could he surprise and be one of those four missing players that needs to be a two plus war contributor to help the White Sox move from rebuilder to contender? Absolutely. He can get hot. He can hit a bunch of home runs for the White Sox, provide some much needed power from the left-handed side while catching or playing first base or DH. But right now he's under the no category that I have no confidence that he will be a two plus war player in 2020, which is what the White Sox need. Are there any significant players, Jim,
2: under your no category? Oh, you know, I think you covered it. Zach Collins is the most curious to me just because he would be the kind of guy who could draw walks and and provide, you know, some left-handed power and offer things that this White Sox lineup doesn't have and could sorely need. But right now, I think it's just uh, too far away. And, you know, based on not really having a position... I think it's going to be tough. Yolmer, like you said, Ryan Goins right now, I'm, I'm watching him. We'll talk about him and, and P.O. Sox and such, but I think, uh, you know, watching Goins come in and, and provide, you know, above average offense and, and some pop and you, after watching him for a couple of weeks, realize like, Oh yeah, Yolmer just hasn't really done much of anything. <laughs> just, uh, yeah. Somebody who knew on the scene just kind of reveals how far, um, Out of hand, something had gotten it, and production second base had really taken a hit. So I, he's had some better games of late, but yeah, he's going to be too expensive. Uh, Yeah, Nova's out, Jay's out. Catcher, I think, is a mess. Like I think McCann right now, uh, the way you know July he had, and uh, the way his the strikeouts ballooned on him. uh, The the defensive numbers okay. He's throwing well, framing is below average, but you know his work behind the plate is okay. But just offensively, you know that's drying up. I'd really love to see Yasmani Grandal. I think it's my biggest wish right now. And I think uh, that would be one of those, uh, you know, three, uh, two, three war players that we're talking about that would fill that spot perfectly.
0: Yeah. And as I mentioned with Aaron Bummer, there could be some bullpen arms that have a terrific season like Aaron Bummer has. But, Mm -hmm. you know, with bullpens, we've been talking about it all year. They're fickle. Aaron Bummer may be great this year. He may not be great next year. They're very hard to count on. Uh, And Alex Colome, I don't think is going to reach two war. This season, he's currently at one and a half war for the White Sox, but it really depends on how many opportunities he's going to have in the last two months of the season. So maybe that's where the White Sox can fill the gap. But right now, Jim and I have seven players, and they need to find four more. And there was something interesting that I read over the weekend from Joe Sheehan. Uh, He's got a newsletter that there's a lot of people that subscribe to for his thoughts about baseball, and he writes for various other outlets. And he, his recent newsletter over the weekend was about the teams that have a 0% chance of making the postseason, according to Fangraphs. And he wrote a little blurb about every team. And the White Sox are one of those teams. They have a 0% chance of making the postseason on Fangraphs. And part of what he wrote, this is from Joe Sheehan. The White Sox punted last offseason, barely reaching out on Bryce Harper and making an embarrassingly small offer to Manny Machado. They'll get another chance this winter with Anthony Rendon and Garrett Cole, two pieces they desperately need on the market. The 2020 White Sox have a projected payroll of $38 million. If they Don't go out and get at least one five-win player to go with their young, inexpensive core. They deserve every bit of anger their fans can throw at them. This is the moment with Jimenez, Gilito, Anderson, Mankata, with Kopech, Robert, Cease, and Magical coming. You can't dink and dunk your way with two-win veterans around that core. You have to add a superstar. And he finishes with, you could either be the 2010 Pittsburgh Pirates or you could be the 2010 Houston Astros, Jerry Picklein. And of course, Jerry is Jerry Reinsdorf. And that last line has stuck with me, Jim. You could either be the 2010 Pirates or the 2010 Astros. With the Pirates, it was 21 years of not making the postseason. 21, I think, consecutive seasons below 500 records for Pittsburgh. And then all of a sudden with a young Andrew McCutcheon and Starling Marte that, and with Garrett Cole, uh, they made it to the postseason at least two years in a row. If it was not three straight years, I think they were in the national league wildcard for three straight seasons. Yep. Three straight seasons. And they lost a the Card in two of those years. So <laughs> two one and dones for the pirates. But after seven straight losing seasons, I'm sure every White Sox fan would take three consecutive postseason appearances. The White Sox have never been to the postseason and back-to-back seasons throughout their history. So that would be a first. And maybe we would consider that uh, the rebuild a success but now you look at Pittsburgh and they have fallen back to mediocre and you really don't know how this team is going to consistently finish above 500 and you don't know how this team is going to compete with the St. Louis Cardinals and the Chicago Cubs in the upcoming years with the Houston Astros and what they have built and the aggressive trades they have gone out, getting Garrett Cole and now Zach Reiki, which just seems a bit unfair that they have not had to give up their top prospect, Kyle Tucker, to get any of these guys. And then they acquire someone like Aaron Sanchez, and they make a couple tweaks with them in his first start, and he helps throw a combined no-hitter uh, with the Astros. And it just seems like the Astros just have a team in place that's just going to be a juggernaut. It's just not in 2019 where they could possibly win a world series after they won their first in 2017, they're going to be a contender in 2020 and 2021. It's just going to keep going as they keep finding these players that could be three plus war, or even as Joe wrote five plus war. So Jim, where do you feel most confident placing the white Sox right now? Are they more like the 2010 pirates or do you think they can be like the 2010 Astros?
2: I don't think they're you know the Astros can be part of the conversation yet. I think when you look at the player development and you look at the lack of you know great performances in the minors, you know it's a very top-heavy farm f- farm system right now that uh, really falls off after about five. Um, you know that's problematic when it comes to like you know multiple waves uh, replenishing the talent and, and and filling in for injury. And we also haven't seen the White Sox have the appetite to add top-tier talent yet either. So. I would say, towards the Pirates right now until they prove, you know, one, that they can, you know, stock their own roster with average guys. And then also that they can, uh, you know, they're willing to swim in the deep end. Would you be good with that? Uh, Relatively, I guess, you know, it would set a new, um, you know, it would finally have, you know, multiple postseason appearances in one year. But it would be disappointing and it would be a lot of, you know, the same thing like the Houston or the Kansas City Royals are another case where they, built forever, had a couple of big years and then faded off basically immediately. So basically you're looking at like a three-year window. I think three years would be, I would say, you know, if you have a three-year window or a three-year run where they make the postseason all those years, and then they fade back a little bit, that would be okay. If they have to rebuild all over again, that would be a failure. I just don't
0: at this moment in August of 2019, see where Jerry Reinstorf suddenly changes his mind about how, especially on how they go after starting pitchers. Like I don't see the White Sox being a serious contender for Garrett Cole, but I said the same thing about Manny Machado and the opportunity presented itself. And obviously they lost out at the very end, but they were serious contenders to sign Manny Machado, even though they failed Maybe things can change, but if we're still relying on Jerry Reinsdorf to all of a sudden look at the very small payroll and change what he will approve in deals for Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams, I just feel like this team is much closer to the 2010 Pirates because Jerry Reinsdorf only wants to operate a baseball team with a less than $120 million payroll.
2: Yeah, I mean, when you look at Machado, it's like either they were really interested in signing him or they were really interested in coming in second place and pretending that they put on a good show. And I think when you look at uh, how short their offer came up and how long it dragged out and how they could have finished it uh, a lot faster, had they had the appetite to go to $300 million, um, probably would have had them. You know, So I think it's, when it comes to spending that kind of money, um, you know you know Rick Hahn liked to point out that they signed Luis Robert and so forth, and you know, that's all well and good, but now they can't do that anymore. They've closed that uh, loophole and you know the the draft and markets are all fixed costs now, so it's really you know spending this kind of money is the only way you can really take advantage of financial flexibility and, and I know financial flexibility when it comes to, like teams like the Braves and the twins and such. Is, is a loaded term and just kind of uh, if you prioritize flexibility and never spend it, you just are prioritizing profits. And I think that's the case uh, with the White Sox right now, the last few years, it's been good for their bottom line, uh, making a lot of money because the, you know, between the out of team revenue psych, uh, streams and the uh, you know, the little amount they're paying the players and still the residual um, you know, attendance, they, the attendance really didn't bottom out the way it did in other markets. Uh they're you know, they're more or less fine. And I think uh uh you know, right now I think they're positioned to spend a lot of money and profit from it, but the White Sox really haven't uh, been in the mode to spend money to make money. That doesn't seem to be their mindset and uh, I wouldn't count on that changing until it actually happens. And I know that's uh you know, I'll believe it when I see it as kind of a cop out, but in this case, you know, after the Machado thing, um they really do have to prove it.
0: Yeah. So again, we have seven players that we are 75% sure are going to be two plus war players for the White Sox. So they need to find four players either internally that we did not list, or they need to go find them either via trade or in free agency before being really confident that, yeah, the White Sox are going to contend in 2020. So this is what we're going to be watching for for the rest of the season. And hopefully we get an opportunity to see Luis Robert with the white Sox, maybe even Nick Madrigal as well as really, there's nothing to learn in AAA these days uh, with the pitching environment and the ball that they're using. uh, So we can get a better sense of what this team is heading into the off season. And if they are serious about turning the corner on how much work Rick Khan has for the upcoming off season, there's still a lot to learn and it would be worthwhile if they went in that direction and it just add more to the disappointment if they decide not to and they keep trotting out the Ryan Cordell's of the world and we keep seeing highlights from Charlotte of Luis Robert just tearing up the league. I don't think that's benefiting anyone, including the White Sox, today. So again, though, share us your list. Let us know on how many players that you have a 75% or higher confidence level will be two-plus war players for the White Sox. And again, we'll see what happens in the final two months of the season if anyone goes from hopeful to 100% confident, or maybe someone that's on your maybe list plays really well in the last two months and you move them to your 75-plus percent list. But coming up next, let's check in on how well Luis Robert is playing in this week's Minor League Report. A quick word from our sponsor, Wix.com. Let's say you run a small business or thinking about launching one, or you have a big event upcoming like a wedding, or maybe you want to get your voice heard and decide to launch your own blog or podcast. You'll need a website to help launch, and there is no better place to get started than at Wix.com. Over 140 million people use Wix for their website because it's easy to get started and publish for free. You can choose from 500 stunning templates or if you have some design chops, you can make your own from scratch. With built-in SEO tools, you can get your website found online easily on Google and every site is automatically optimized for any device whether you're looking at it from a PC or mobile device. Wix even has built-in tools like storage, custom domains, custom email addresses, marketing tools, and e-commerce. With a dedicated support team, Wix can help you launch a complex website to help you run your entire business or a simple place for you to share your talents to the world. Whatever you are dreaming of, you'll need a website, and Wix can help. Get started now by going to Wix.com, that's wixcom slash podcast to get
2: 10% off when you upgrade your site. There's really no good reason why Luis Robert is still cordoned off in the minor league report, but here he is regardless. Robert had another big week, he's hit safely in 10 of his last 11 games, and raised his average to .352 with a three-hit night on Saturday, which also hoisted his slugging percentage above 700. He's also made a number of sensational plays in center field, so it's not like defense is a sticking point. He's not striking out a ton, he's drawing a surprising amount of walks. Triple A really has nothing to teach him. Nick Madrigal hasn't had the same sort of immediate success since getting promoted to Charlotte last week, but it's only been three games. He's 2-for-11 with a walk, and of course he hasn't struck out yet. Down in Birmingham, both Luis Gonzalez and Luis Basabe have slipped ahead of Blake Rutherford as the outfielder OPS title enters its final month. None of them are good, but Gonzalez, who leads the way with a 673 OPS, has been pretty effective since the All-Star break, which was nearly 40 games ago. Passabe has also appeared to find a groove, reaching base 14 times over the last seven games, including a homer and three doubles. Rutherford, on the other hand, couldn't summon an encore for a strong June. He hit just 231 with a 276 OBP and 31 strikeouts over 23 games in July. The goal is for one of these guys to get to 700 by the end of the season so they can stop blocking Steel Walker. Walker has raised his OPS back over 800 in Winston-Salem. He's riding a six-game hitting streak, with multiple hits in five of those games, and multiple walks in the last two. He had a lackluster July after winning the White Sox Organizational Player of the Month honors in June, but he seems intent on finishing the year on a high note. Andrew Vaughn's first week with the Dash was a quiet one, outside of a thunderous homer in his high-A debut. He's 3-for-15 with 3 walks and 4 strikeouts over his first 5 games in the Carolina League. The Kannapolis Intimidators received the services of Bernardo Flores, who has been rehabbing a strained oblique for the last few weeks. He gave up 3 runs over 3 innings in his first start with Kannapolis on Thursday. Outside of Davis Martin, who's up to 130 strikeouts against just 32 walks over 118 innings, there really isn't another Intimidator who is pushing for a promotion, although they might get Bryce Bush back in the near future. He resurfaced in the Arizona League on Sunday as he works his way back from an injury. The Great Falls Voyagers have been largely quiet as well, but 2018 fourth rounder Lency Delgado had a July that stands out. He hit 326 with a 383 OBP and 500 slugging percentage over the month, including 10 extra base hits in 23 games. He struck out 30 times, so contact remains a concern, but it's nice to see the power start to emerge as that figured prominently in his draft profile. Speaking of contact, 16th rounder DJ Gladney battled a strikeout binge the past week, striking out 10 times over the span of 13 plate appearances. The Amateur City Elite alum in Oak Park product is up to 62 strikeouts against just 5 walks in 38 games, but he's hit for enough power to call his pro debut a success with a slugging percentage over .500. He's trailing fellow 18 year old Jose Rodriguez in that department. Rodriguez has a 9 game hitting streak and is batting 307 with an OPS near 900. I still haven't heard or read a damn thing about him, as he signed for a nominal amount of money out of the Dominican last year. And speaking of the Dominican, $2.5 million signing Yulbert Sanchez has been hanging out in the DSL, where he's been more or less fine. He's hitting 273 with a 351 OBP and 394 slugging, with 7 walks and 7 strikeouts over 17 games. It's not really worth evaluating him right now, as he's knocking off the rust after a long layoff, and he's also too old for the league. Who isn't too old for the league? Elijah Tatis. The 17-year-old brother of Fernando Jr. is batting just 191 so far, but he has drawn 10 walks and 9 strikeouts over his first 15 games. That'll do it for the Minor League Report. Now let's answer your questions in P.O. Sox.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, the fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Sox Machine, posting your questions on our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Sox Machine, And also helping support the site and the show at patreon.com slash Machine. And of course, Jim is here to answer your guys' questions this week. And Jim, the first question that we have comes from Gukus Leogito. And Gukus is asking, you both sounded quite down on last week's live show. What are either of you looking forward to slash
2: watching for in the last two months of the season? Well, I think, you know, looking back at the last segment, when it comes to trying to find the two wins above replacement players, I think that's kind of what I'm looking at. Uh, those players at 50% and above, like Jimenez and Anderson and Mancada and Lopez and Giolito and Cease, and uh, you know maybe how Abreu finishes out and, and how that affects the upcoming negotiations for his future. Whether James McCann looks like a catcher who's worthy of a roster spot. I mean, like he was an all-star in the first half, his July was really terrible. So I think, uh, yeah, he's got the history of, uh, you know, Detroit. There there was a reason why Detroit, uh, non-tendered him. So, um, he, he doesn't have the most, uh, robust history of being an adequate major league catcher. So, you know, that's the case too, but that's a little bit disappointing when it comes to, uh, you know, I guess players who I will enjoy watching and I'm hoping to enjoy watch. It is, uh, Moncada and, Jimenez Anderson and hopefully Luis Roberts um that would I think be a big boost to I think a lot of people is just uh being able to enjoy him in in Chicago and not just have to look at empty stats in Charlotte and wonder you know why the White Sox aren't entertaining you (laughs) at the major league level so I would say that um and Moncada really I'm I'm, he was my pick for uh the guy to lead the White Sox and homers this year and I think uh I was among the 7% who said he would, so I am I have a vested interest in that now. <laughs> for me,
0: Aloy, he needs to get hot. He needs to finish the year strong, so I'm, I'm a little bit more confident going into next season for him. And maybe he can have a big bounce like Yuan Minkata, but even though Minkata in 2018 played poorly, according to fan graphs, he was a two-win player for the White Sox, and right now Eloy Jimenez is not even close to to that amount so that's what I'm going to be looking for Gukas we need to see more out of Eloy in these last two months and hopefully his performance on Sunday sparks something and he can help carry the offense in the upcoming weeks while Yohan Makata is still on the mend but Gukas thank you so much for your question our next question comes from Alex Gaspar and Alex is asking Small sample sizes in the second half, but do you see Ryan Goings or Yvonne Nova as possible one-year deal re-signings this offseason for depth purposes? Could Goings be a cheaper Yoma replacement behind Nick Madrigal and Nova
2: as a fifth starter depth? Now, well, Goings is still under team control. Uh, he's only at four years of service time, so he's got a couple of years left, and if he somehow miraculously keeps his line of performance all the way through the end or even kind of close to it, um, then I think, yeah, it's you have your Yolmer replacement right there. It's worth keeping him. It's not worth letting him go just in case he happened to uh, just discover a whole new level of performance. And Ryan, yeah, I was looking at his baseball reference page. And I knew he was not good. You know, I, I knew he's a glove first infielder, but I didn't realize his last three seasons in the majors, he had a 266 OBP which is a uh, 61 OPS plus, just uh, completely, you know, probably probably one of the uh, worst bats for the guy who got as many play, uh, plate appearances as he did. So to have this kind of performance right now is, well, one completely out of nowhere. Um, and, and you would think it's not sustainable, but, you know, if you are if you want to talk yourself into it, it's hard to imagine that Goins ever had this kind of stretch of performance. I mean, look at how flat his numbers were uh, between his days with the Blue Jays and the Royals. This is just, I think probably completely new to him too. And, um, it, I'm interested in him. I'm not, I, I guess I'm not banking on him figuring it out, uh, at age 30 after, you know, having basically six seasons of no major league production, but I, he's got my interest. And I think, uh, when it comes to this, uh, White Sox lineup and, and somebody who takes walks, um, that's, uh, anybody who can take a walk right now is, uh, has got my interest. Well, when it comes to, when it comes to Nova though, um, I think his upside really isn't there. Um, Right now with him, you're just hoping to get six decent innings. And with James Shields, you could hope for at least seven innings. Uh, With Nova, when he gets to six, it feels like a triumph. And I just don't see the upside being there to save a roster spot for him. I think he's proven some of his value over the last month and what he can add. But saving a spot for him kind of feels like saving a spot for Miguel Gonzalez uh, in his last Go around with the White Sox. It just the the payoff isn't there. You're, what you're hoping for is somebody who really probably doesn't have trade value and, and can't bring something back. And I don't know if you save a roster spot for that guy. No, I agree with you. They need a significant upgrade
0: over Ivan Nova to be paired with Giolito, Lopez, Cease, and Kopek in next year's starting rotation.
2: Yeah, you run of opportunities for veterans uh, after that point if you add a credible frontline major league starter. They're just, you know, he would look elsewhere because there isn't innings for him. Right. And like, again, Garrett Cole would be perfect,
0: but even like someone like Zach Wheeler from the New York Mets could be a very good addition for the white Sox. And of course, someone you mentioned a few weeks ago, even going further down the clearance aisle, someone maybe like Kyle Gibson from the twins. I can't say that with a straight face, because he only pitches well, it seems like, against the White Sox. But Kyle Gibson would be an improvement over Ivan Nova, especially for the course of a season. But I think for Ivon Nova, he's a for sure not coming back. The White Sox need a significant upgrade at, starting, at the starting pitching front over Nova's spot. Ryan Goings, uh, we'll see. I did not know that he was under team control still. That, that kind of changes my opinion.
2: Yeah, well, how do you feel about him though? Like, uh, what wh- what's your barometer? He's—you cannot deny
0: the fact that he's been one of the more productive offensive players since he's joined the White Sox, and he looks hitter-ish, like he's a professional hitter, and he's getting time at third base, so he's providing infield depth. I like him more than Jose Rendon. Mm-hmm. if you're going to have that spot. But if, it, if I knew that Ryan Goins is going to be cheaper than Yomer Sanchez going to next season, then, yeah, stick with Ryan Goings then. But Nick Madrigal will be starting second baseman. However, it, you still need that utility guy, and I'm not quite sure if Lurie Garcia is your first utility player. He just becomes a super utility guy. If the White Sox are serious about finding a – a power bat that could play in right field to pair with Robert and Jimenez in the outfield. And and Garcia is now back to the bench. It's an interesting situation with goings. Maybe I look at him, Jim as being like the 25th guy for the white Sox in 2020. So for me, it boils down to who would I rather have at this moment, Ryan goings or Yomer Sanchez. And with the very small sample size and recency bias, I would pick Ryan goings.
2: Yeah, there's some James McCann here. Uh, That's what I was thinking. That what came to mind, too, is that McCann didn't have the production on his side. We looked at his Tigers' track record, has a great first half that comes out of nowhere, and then regression sets in hard. So I'm trying to uh, keep that in the back of my mind and say, like, well, he could just have two bad weeks and he's back to his Toronto numbers. But for the time being, you know, with this kind of crazy ball environment, um, you can't completely count it out. Right. He looked, again, he looks better at the plate than Yomer Sanchez. So. And
0: I think Goings defensively will be fine at second base. I don't know if you'd be better than Yomer Sanchez, because Yomer Sanchez plays well defensively at second base, but you can you can count on Goings to help you out and, and not be a liability defensively at second base. But again, my preferred would be Nick Madrigal, being the starting second baseman for the White Sox in 2020. But great question, Alex. Our next question comes from Showtime Sam. And Showtime is asking, as the rebuild shifts into the higher gear, Zach Collins doesn't seem to have much of a catcher role on this team. Does he even have a future spot at first base with Andrew Vaughn present?
2: Or is Zach Collins trade bait? I think he might be trade bait if he just had a little bit more going for him in one area, like if you're a better catcher or if he were you know more productive at the plate. But I think you know, if you're more productive at the plate, the White Sox would be using him. So right now, I think he's a little bit in an in-between situation where it might, you know, if they trade him, it would be for a challenge trade for a, uh, another prospect for another team who, you know, they can't figure him out or he's hit a dead end or he's being thoroughly blocked and doesn't have a future, kind of like you know AJ Reed a little bit. Uh, that would be the kind of, I guess, challenge trade right now, and and so that doesn't seem all that appetizing right now. But I am watching Collins just because he is doing something a little bit interesting right now in Charlotte. Uh, ever since he came back, I've noticed that, you know, that he has had more, he's filled the box score more, you know, more multi-hit games, um, fewer strikeouts, uh, you know, fewer multiple strikeout games, fewer multiple walk games. Seems like he's taking a bit of a page from the Yohan Makata playbook and trying to, you know, make action happen versus, um, you know, build a good count in his favor every time. Um, and James Feegan wrote about it and he talked about how he's working with new hand placement and new stance and, Frank Minichino has been working with him uh, in Charlotte. And Collins, yeah, I, I really don't trust that kind of uh, early turns because Collins has talked about new stances before, going back to his old stance in Miami and that briefly working and then ending up in the same place. So it's not, uh, I'm not banking on it being something that solves the problem of um, you know, uh, somebody with holes in the swing and can be just uh, blown away with high fastballs and can't pose enough of a threat to draw walks in the majors. Um, but he is doing something at least a little bit interesting right now. I think uh, the changes he's making and the changes in his box score might be why Sebby Zavala is up right now instead of uh, Zach Collins. Just because it seems like he is, uh, seems like he has a project with everyday playing time right now. But you know, should he keep this up through you know mid-August, um, I wouldn't mind seeing him come up. You know, bid a uh, bit to Wellington Castillo, uh, bring up his second catcher, and then maybe even make him the first catcher. You know, give him. 60% of the starts behind the plate, and, and uh, you know, time at DH when he's not playing there and just see what he's got. Yeah. Cause if Zach Collins can come back and have a really
0: good month of the major leagues, even if you do consider him trade bait, it will just enhance his trade value. And maybe you can piece together a deal like Zach Collins, Jonathan Stever, who's having a great season. Uh, even he, with him being in Winston-Salem, and I know he's climbing up the, the prospect rankings for the White Sox. He, I think someone at Baseball America, uh, they wrote that some scouts believe that he is the best arm within the White Sox farm system now. Maybe you could pair those guys up and you can get – that's how you address the starting rotation. You go get someone that's controllable from, from another team and you try to leverage – with the arrow pointing up. But the, po- the arrow's got to point up for Zach Collins first before you could really serious seriously consider him as trade bait to get someone really worth value in return for Zach Collins. Because I don't think, Jim, the White Sox are going to entertain the idea of tra- uh, trading Nick Magical or Andrew Vaughn uh, mm. in a deal this upcoming offseason.
2: Yeah, I think the top five in their farm system is basically they need them to – be Around and be fixtures in the rotation lineup, so that's why this, yeah, you know, this uh regression or not even regression, just uh, I guess degeneration of the second tier of White Sox prospects has been so costly. But Stever, as you mentioned, stepping up should be a big help. Um, and then hopefully, one of these outfielders ends up sticking, like you know, Gonzalez, you know, one of these outfielders in, in Birmingham that has a good month is able to have. Two, three good months in a row for once—that uh, would be great. But yeah, uh, but I'm I'm curious about this Collins project, and if that you know somehow works, uh, at least to be like a threat at the plate, you know, not somebody who uh, you know puts up Collins's uh, numbers that he put up in Miami. But you know, somebody who hits like 250 uh, with you know and slugs a you know, 480 and has a decent on-base percentage and can play some catcher. Um, yeah, I wonder you know if between him and like Goins. You know, should Goins be somebody worth sticking around? I wonder if you're going to hear Frank Manichino's name as somebody who is worth uh, promoting. I am good with that
0: because it sounds like even when I was down in Charlotte and I interviewed Danny Mendek and Charlie Tilson at the time when he was hitting much better, everyone raves about him. Yeah, it's
2: hard to separate it from the environment at Charlotte to know how much of, you know, the success they're seeing just makes Manichino look good. But I do like his quotes. I like that he's he's not... uh, um, he's not making things up about Luis Roberts. He's just basically saying he's wasting his time. <laughs> yeah. that That's a point in uh, his, uh, my favor or yeah. point in his favor for me.
0: You can you can clip that. And if anyone works in the white Sox front office, you can just print it, cut it, tape it in Rick Khan's office. Uh, this is what the triple a hitting coach thinks about Luis Robert. Uh, that was a great quote from him, but showtime, Sam, that's an excellent question. I, I think for Zach Collins, trade bait though, Let's see how he performs in these last two months. Would be, I think, incredibly beneficial even to the White Sox for even their internal considerations for next season, or if they're seriously thinking about using him in a trade package to acquire a controllable starting pitcher, for example. They need Zach Collins to show a run of success in the major leagues to help enhance that trade value. So, show time, Sam. Thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week to PO Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Machine. And you can help support the site and show at patreon.com slash Jim just recently Wrote the post July in a box for our Patreon supporters. So if you like our work and you want more from us, not just from the writing, but also from the podcast itself, and maybe you want an ad-free version of the show, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the show, you can subscribe to us via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and audioboom.com slash Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.